We must speak the truth about terrorists. Let us never tolerate outrageous conspiracy theories, malicious lies that attempt to shift the blame away from the terrorists themselves. What happens? I tell you what happens. Blam! I have a window that looks directly at the World Trade Center, and I saw... No delusion! Shit's getting way too complicated for me. Welcome to this Antidote Deep Core text. This is Greg McCarran. And this is Jeremy roth Cushell. So for this deep core text, we are going to uh, start out by uh, following up on what we ended part one of our September 11th uh, 20-year retrospective on, which was the case of John P. O'Neill, the former uh, FBI counter-terror head who was appointed head of security at the World Trade Center by Kroll Associates before fatefully dying in the World Trade Center on September 11th. We're going to follow up by reading from uh, Christopher Boleyn's uh, Solving 9-11, the deception that changed the world, with um, some, with a portion related to Kroll and Associates and Jules Kroll. And then from there, we're going to move into reading some uh, information uh, about Shaul Eisenberg. And then time permitting, that'll link us back to the Israel-China relationship, which we have done a number of uh, deep core texts on uh, that specific topic of the relationship between Israel and China with uh, Shaul Eisenberg being central to that. So uh, we're going to uh, start out with uh, going back onto the the topic of the Krolls. And uh, Jeremy, uh, what are we going to be specifically uh, reading from? Yes, uh, the page 164 of Solving 9-11, The Deception That Changed the World by Christopher Bolin, a part of the a crucial chapter of that book that we've talked about before, The Architecture of Terror, uh, starting towards the middle of it, page 164, a section called The Kroll Connection, uh, and then through a few more pages that takes us into the the deeper historical background of the acquisition, apparently, of the security contracts to the World Trade Center by this very interested, specific Israeli intelligence network, most obviously coordinated via the figure of Shaul Eisenberg. And then we will uh, go a little bit more deeply into the Shaul Eisenberg connection. And we have dug up some interesting sources around uh, Eisenberg's history that we've mentioned before as a key, if not the key, conduit between, at the time, the covert relationship between Israel and China in terms of military hardware and intelligence relationships in the late 70s. But this uh, very recently published academic article, paper really, uh, has some more information about the background there that will be very interesting. And then if we have time, we will then loop back into this deeper relationship uh, between Israel and China and economy and technology and China really as the gateway for Israel to the Asian world more generally by looking at another, jumping forward to another section in the book Israel and China from Silk Road to Innovation Highway by Lionel Friedfeld and Philippe Matuti, Understanding Asia's Relationship with the Jewish State that we've uh, read from last time we were uh, doing an antidote deep court text about Israel and China. But it is the case, I just want to say, that we 
have a tendency here at The Antidote to conduct research sort of like maybe having too many tabs open on your uh, browser screen and following a bunch of threads uh, 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 over and over and then at the time following these rabbit holes. And we want to continue circling back and back and back here in terms of threading some of these analyses between September 11th the origins, especially of the who and the why, but then back into these larger geopolitical questions about this relation, this sort of until very recently, very cloaked and very little understood or even known about relationship between Israel and China economically and technologically and how long term it is. And this is why we picked out this figure of Shaul Eisenberg, who brings the, these threads very much together. And so we'll be instructive to both of those uh, threads of analysis. And we will return directly to this ongoing 9-11 20th anniversary analysis, including the meta-analysis of the current s scope of the media, and both in terms of the fictional and mainstream media accounts of aspects of the 9-11 story, including the whole controversy around uh, um, the HBO series by, uh, what's his name? Spike Lee. Spike Lee. By what we might have titled at one point, the lifetime director Spike Lee. Uh, and then also this uh, other film featuring Michael Keaton as the original 9-11 paymaster, Kenneth Feinberg. And then we'll also loop back into uh, getting more deeply into, especially some left uh, uh, angles uh, and maybe inadequacies in terms of September 11th and go a little bit more deeply into the questions of the the peace movement as it sits and the, the code pink and mass peace action call that I referenced before, and then do some analysis of recent uh, Media Roots podcasts, uh, both in terms of an, an interview with uh, Scott Horton, the longtime host and writer of, uh, of anti-war, anti-war radio, and then a more uh, recent, more specifically 9-11 oriented Media Roots podcast with uh, Gumby, Gumby for Christ on Twitter, and some very interesting points there that that uh, we'll uh, unpack and uh, critically analyze. But as we move forward towards an, this larger geopolitical analysis and a very specific focus on 9-11 itself, rather than throwing up our hands and saying, who I guess will never know about 9-11 or it doesn't really matter. All we need to know is that they lied to us about 9-11 and we still, 20 years down the road, I still can't say I know anything more about uh, what actually happened on 9-11, who did it and why. We're going to continue to go down the road of the facts and the forensics of what we do know about September 11th and what it means about who did it and why. And then piece that into this bigger geopolitical analysis and uh, un maybe unpack and, uh, and uh, 
destigmatize a lot of these facts and then rehistoricize uh, some some of these how these some of these facts uh, relate to the way that we understand history. All right, no doubt. Um, I totally agree with you, and that's the thing is that like while we have a specifically themed show or a couple of shows about September 11th as it relates to 20th anniversary, it's like that's always going to be ultimately at the forefront or continue to always be intertwined with what we're with what else we're talking about because i do believe they're all interconnected in that a lot it's not all roads a lot of roads many of the roads that we're covering if not all of the roads lead back to the uh the bigger i would say both long-term and short-term uh plot around uh september 11th and the um the orchestrating of it in the the perpetrating of it as far as not just short-term the immediate moments but in terms like a long-term framing and, and narrative in place and long-term uh, uh of planning of like the types of events or the types of uh geopolitical situations that could be um that there could be something gained from so i mean it will always be intertwined with whatever we're doing whether it's covering the relationship between israel and china or whether it's um covering the way media looks at issues i mean it will always be at the center and at the forefront of the work we're doing because it's just so central to the state i believe of our world as as it is and of and obviously as we've talked about the key defining moment of our generation in terms of just completely changing the world around us from domestically the way we live domestically in many ways from how we go to airports to how um geopolitics is conducted in terms of the of these wars, these never these wars that like what you're talking about here with the the peace movement and the anti-war people, where they're just not um, to say they're falling short would be an understatement. So it's always going to be intertwined and directly um, directly associated with the uh, with the work we're doing and other topics that ostensibly are not related, but really are from a much deeper perspective are related to this uh, to this catalyzing event of. Uh, tw- that we just celebrated it was celebrated is a not the correct term that we just marked the uh, 20th anniversary of, so i think it's fair greg that you say many if not all roads lead through 9-11 i think that's fair uh and all right so and i think that you also fairly uh portrayed where we had left off last time in terms of kroll and john o'neill and that whole network. And so now we will get a little bit more deeply into the core of that text. All right. So Solving 9-11, The Deception That Changed the World by Christopher Bolin, page 164. Quote, The Kroll Connection. It is interesting to note that Jeremy M. Kroll, the managing director of Marsh Kroll, is also on the advisory board of Elad Yaran's security growth partners. All right. In a side, we I just have to mention that what he, this is right after a section where uh, Bolin covers some aspects of the apparent cyber as, uh, angle of September 11th and how it looks like it's directly tied into uh, Silicon Wadi and Israeli military intelligence uh, Unit 8200 technology investment circles via 
uh, people that he talks about, like uh, Avi Naur Aharonovich, the uh, one of the founders of Amdocs, for example, and then he goes into the Uran brothers, uh, Amit Uran being the most uh, famous in cyber circles. He eventually went on to become the, he was the, the heading up the Pentagon's cyber uh, work in the run-up to September 11th, I believe, and then uh, post-September 11th became the head of Homeland Security Cyber, I believe, operations at some point. And then also, I, I think he headed up uh, the uh, so-called CIA investment uh, group uh, in QTEL. And uh, so, and then I'll just, I'll just briefly go back one uh, section here page 161, just so that, that we get a sense of what um, Bolin is referencing. Quote, in February 2001, Amit Yaron, then chief executive of Riptech, told the Associated Press that hackers often break into a system through a computer that runs a website. Quote, once you break in to the web server, there are fewer protections between it and other parts of the network, unquote, Yaron said. Riptech Quote, was founded by Elad and Amit Yaron, two Israeli West Point graduates who claim years of security experience, and Tim Belcher, a Desert Storm veteran who serves as the company's chief technology officer, unquote, the Washington Times reported on December 11, 2000. Quote, Amit Yaron reportedly helped design the Pentagon's computer security architecture, unquote, the Times reported. Quote, the threat changes every day. There has always been and always will be a criminal element out there. The crooks are not going away, unquote, said Elad Yaron, the company's chief financial officer. He should know he was Riptech's chief marketing officer and vice president for business development at the time of 9-11. Okay, now skipping ahead. That, that, that. That section is crucial, and we'll return to that when we get deeper into really uncovering how 9-11 was done in relationship to who and why, okay? And this really crucial, often forgotten cyber component of September 11th, which really ties together the other components, including, you know, Things going crash, big explosions, but then also the the questions of stand downs and U.S. Air Force and NORAD and war games with uh, blips on screens and uh, all of these mimetic drills and all of that going on. And then who who, for example, amongst the 9/11 attackers had the code name for the Air Force One and had threatened Air Force One with uh, Angel is Next, while there's all these uh, global nuclear war drills going on, and the Department of Energy's nuclear bomb squad, the NEST team, out of the country for the first time in three years in an undo a nuclear device drill. Uh, and so all that surrounds then questions of cyber architecture. Uh, and so that's what Bolin is referring back to. All right, back to page 164 of Solving 9-11, The Deception That Changed the World by Christopher Bolin. Quote, this is a crucial connection in the Zionist network behind 9-11. Kroll, the son of Jules B. Kroll, has been an executive at Marsh Kroll, 
a division of Marsh and McLennan Company, MMC, since 1996. Kroll's connection with Elad and Amit Yaron through SGP reveals a key link between the American Zionist network and Israeli military intelligence. Martian McLennan is headed by Jeffrey Greenberg, the son of Maurice Raymond Hank Greenberg. Maurice Greenberg, the former CEO of AIG, has been a business partner with Jules B. Kroll since 1993 when he bought 23% of Kroll Inc. for $15 million. In 2004, MMC acquired the rest of Kroll for the hugely inflated price of $1.9 billion. Jules Kroll reportedly retired in July 2008. The first plane on 9-11 flew directly into the secure computer room of Martian McLennan, where Jeffrey Greenberg was CEO. What an amazing coincidence. Or was it? That's the end of page 164. And a quick aside, and what an amazing coincidence it was, too, that at the uh, 2017 Left Forum in New York City, uh, that the it was held uh, that the place where you would walk through in order to go to the conference where uh, a lot of our panels that de- dealt directly with uh, Zionist terrorism, 9-11, had been at the very last moment uh, censored and taken out of the left forum. But as people, participants in the left forum, the maybe one of, if not the uh, central left intellectual gatherings, activist gatherings, intellectual gatherings around the world, really, that people who were participating that walked through the Kroll Auditorium and on the in the entrance there was a piece of the World Trade Center steel, and then the the Kroll Kroll name was on the auditorium where all of the left activists were set up, either discussing things before their next left forum uh, presentation panel or uh, flyering at different tables. And for some reason, like I, I seem to be the only person in the left out forum where we did it in the same building. We were able to get a, a room in the same building and uh, present some of these panels uh, after they were kicked out of the left forum. But I seem to be the only person who identified what that meant about the location and how at the very least there was a, uh, a, a violent irony about that, uh, about that location and what it meant about what the kind of speech was that was going to be allowed and what was not going to be allowed. Uh, so I just wanted to uh, point that out in terms of in some resonance with as we loop back to thinking about the, the failings and the serious problematic approaches of the left critical analysis to 9-11, the war on terror, uh, for 20 years straight now and sort of reaching some kind of obvious conclusion at some level, I would say, in terms of its obvious uh, failure in this recent 20th um, remembrance. All right, back to the book, Solving 9-11, The Deception That Changed the World by Christopher Bolin, page 165. Quote, Kroll Security at the World Trade Center. 
Kroll Associates was responsible for, quote, revamping security at the World Trade Center after the 1993 terrorist bombing, unquote, Douglas France of the New York Times reported in 1994. This is a crucial point because those who controlled security at the WTC are prime suspects in the demolition of the Twin Towers. It was directly into the computer room of Marsh Kroll USA in the North Tower that the first plane struck or was precision guided on 9-11. John O'Neill, the former chief of counterterrorism with the FBI who had investigated Al-Qaeda, was the head of security for the World Trade Center complex and was killed on his first day of work on 9-11. O'Neill had been appointed to this position by the managing director of the Kroll security company, Jerome M. Hauer. Kroll evidently continued to manage security for the WTC complex from 1993 until 9-11. Prior to joining Kroll, Hauer, a Zionist Jew, was the director of Mayor Giuliani's Office of Emergency Management, OEM, where he had been the driving force behind having the OEM command bunker built in Larry Silverstein's 47-story WTC-7, the tower which mysteriously fell into its footprint footprint at 5.21 p.m. on 9-11. Testimony from Larry Silverstein and physical evidence strongly suggests that WTC-7 was demolished with explosives and thermite. End of that section. And just a quick aside here, I just want to say, you know, about the some of the controversies and disagreements and debates uh, and critical inquiries into the how of September 11th, especially the weaponry mechanisms that of the takedown of the towers and which ultimately are the are large portions of the murder weapon in terms of that aspect of September 11th or even to the to the Pentagon and some of these uh, controversies, these are, I would say, important controversies enough to get to the bottom uh, some aspect of investigational surety around, uh, but are not the primary focus. And it may be more complicated than people want to admit. It may be that there are layered aspects. So if people are dedicated to a singular how... (laughs) of how something happened. It may be that, that, you know, in my mind, just, I'll just, you know, disclose the way that I sort of can think about these things as I imagine a combination of, uh, you know, remote directed, uh, drone. There's a lot of, I would say military drones, uh, dressed up as civilian airplanes is likely some aspect then there's a combination of then uh, in terms of the initiation of quote unquote collapse in specific places in the right places. You're probably talking about very specific, more cutting charges rather than explosives, whether it's sort of advanced uh, super thermite or uh, standard cutting charges, uh, RDX and that kind of thing. And then in terms of mass heat and uh, propulsion, where you begin to actually see some kind of massive force push tons of steel uh, up and out, not down, not sort of falling down to the side, up and out in an arc, then you're talking about some kind of much more higher uh, propulsive, potentially uh, micronuclear technology from the bottom 
uh, upwards. And so, you know, so I just want to point that out that I don't, that I think it's important that we talk about these things and we will do more on this aspect of forensics, especially in terms of how these pieces then can point towards the case, the theory of the case, meaning not obsessed about getting exactly all of the how correctly before we move on to making the case about the the who and the why. And so I just wanted to point that out in terms of the way that Bolin would talk about these um, these things around the the how. All right, back to the text, bottom of page 165 of Solving 9-11, The Deception That Changed the World by Christopher Bolin in the chapter, The Architecture of Terror. Quote, history of Mossad security at Port Authority. There is a very significant but little known history of senior Israeli intelligence officers trying to get the security contract for the World Trade Center in the, in the 1980s. Being in charge of security at the Twin Towers was obviously crucial to the 9-11 operation. The explosive charges and thermite that evidently demolished the three towers could not have been placed in the buildings without the perpetrators having complete control of security. Getting the security contract at the WTC was something senior officers of the Mossad had actively sought since at least 1987. This was clearly part of the Israeli master plan for 9-11, a plan first articulated in 1979 by Iser Harel, the former head of Israeli intelligence. Harel, the director of Haganah intelligence in the 1940s, is seen as the founder of Israeli intelligence. The Haganah and Ergun were the largest Zionist militia terrorist organizations in Palestine prior to the creation of Israel in 1948. Both organizations were involved in the bombing of the King David Hotel and other acts of terrorism. Harel was evidently involved in the long-term planning of 9-11. More than 20 years earlier, he had told Michael D. Evans, an American Zionist, that terrorism would, quote, come to America, unquote. Is that like, like Eddie Murphy coming to America? Okay. <laughs> All right, back to the text. Quote, Arab terrorists would strike the tallest building in New York City. Quote, a symbol of your fertility, unquote, Harrell said. When Evans asked where the Arab terrorists would strike, Harrell said, quote, in Islamic theology, the phallic symbol is very important. Your biggest phallic symbol is New York City, and your tallest building will be the phallic symbol they will hit, unquote. Now, this quote is, um, this is being quote being attributed as being told to Michael Evans. And Michael Evans is an American uh, evangelical who I believe is the head of the Friends of Zion Museum. And so Mike Evans is a pretty uh, big player in terms of uh, the evangelical community directly operating out of Israel. So this is uh, Michael Evans who is uh, recounting being told this about uh, the prediction of of September 11th. So uh, Michael Evans, Friends of Zion Award, he he is responsible for giving that out. And so he's a d directly, I guess, operated out of uh, out of Israel as a key, I would say a key on a global scale, uh, Christian Zionist. So. And Greg, what was, didn't he have, what was Evans's take on the Trump presidency? Was there some specific uh, take I believe, 
I can't remember specifically, but I believe uh, Evans was set to award uh, Vladimir Putin as a friend of Zion, and then it ended up uh, falling falling through for uh, for, for I'll have to go back and uh, and I have to go back and refresh my memory on that. But um, at the very least, I think you know Evans was very obviously he was uh, supportive. He's right there with uh, oh uh, the 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 controversial minister um, oh. Uh, Guy from doubt from Texas, not Hagee. Um, the other oh, one, yeah. uh, Robert Jeffers, Robert Jeffers, and the uh, the whole Robert Jeffers and the prayer at the uh, at the um, at the the event celebrating the uh, embassy mo- moving and all of that. So uh, I don't have the specifics on Evans and Trump specifically, but um, I have to go back and refresh my memory on that. But uh, very much in terms of like the whole Israel thing, you know, this is prophecy playing out and all this. So. And Greg, just so we remember and uh, we alert people to this, you found some very interesting other conversations, maybe more from the right, from the controlled right around September 11th, specifically uh, the podcast of Frank Gaffney, that uh, the two sections that I listened to, you alerted me to that he did an interview with the Douglas Fife for the uh, for his 9/11 podcast and Douglas Fife indicated that on the morning the morning of September 11th he was actually in the Russian defense ministry uh, talking about nuclear uh, arms treaties or something like that and uh, that's very interesting so we should return to that <laughs> it is indeed very interesting and like this is all you know I could get into speculation of what that means but i mean it is pretty interesting um fight being there and specifically as you said dealing with arms control and things like that and of course one of the um i think one of the things people read incorrectly about trump and russia is that trump's this hawk on russia and he's trying to hurt russia and all this or that it's he's a hawk because like the uh the oh the the imf treaty was uh was ripped up under the trump administration the intermediate uh I can't remember exactly oh, what it. Something um, about new intermediate something nuclear forces or something. Yeah, it was it was. INF, um, yeah, right. That's right. The INF treaty was uh, ripped up. That Trump is this hawk on Russia and all this, and it meant that he actually wanted to escalate tensions rather than like being some type of, like Russian asset or agent or whatnot. But the way we see it is that like these these neoconservatives, these people like the Doug Fights of the world very much. Um, like to see these and they also perhaps their counterparts in russia um benefit from having these types of uh treaties uh, ripped up and all of this and so we've we've got we've had we've had conversations about that before but we're not going to rehash that right now but um it is interesting fight uh being in moscow for something that is seen as like the the epitome of like they're the peak of like trump's you know hawkishness towards russia this proves that there's no collusion because trump is doing things that are going to be harmful to russian interests in the uh in all of this but uh and then on top of that of course there's a whole history with the uh you know doug fife being one of coming out of the scoop jackson uh, richard pearl class of uh neoconservatives and among other things in addition to being like the original neocon cold warrior hawks of course the relationship with uh pearl uh, or excuse me not pearl but fife and uh fife and gaffney and their um their collective uh one of their collective uh, mentors and ideological um, mentors, uh, Scoop Jackson, of course, Jackson Vanek, which basically opened the door for this immigration of uh, Soviet Jews out of the Soviet Union and, and other people as well, not just Jews, but uh, 
this the immigration ultimately of what would be the uh, the, the bad apples coming out of the, from the whole from the organized crime uh, aspect of the of Soviet society moving into Israel and also moving into the West. So there's and, a lot and of that a, was the geopolitical cover for the or the human rights cover for the whole thing was that this was all about you know saving. Uh, Jewish refugees. And so e- e- yeah. both in relationship to Jackson Vanek Amendment in terms of the United States and how the a- aspects of the uh, Soviet Union utilized that to then release uh, the organized crime aspects that were in gulags in the Soviet Union and probably amongst that even people people who were directly linked in as assets of you know the russian or soviet then deep state i.e the military intelligence national security commanding heights and then that the uh criminal economic uh quote-unquote underworld and a very similar kind of thing was done with in relationship to israel too and and as we've um, harped on in terms of this recent uh uh, revelation from Craig Unger's American Compromise book about the usage of compromised Soviet Jewish uh, emigres as potential long-term Soviet intelligence and eventually maybe Russian intelligence assets where favors and contracts could be uh, called in and uh, p- put into Use and so and and all the whole entire controversy around the background and the, even the overt acts of someone like Natan Sharansky and his close ties with uh, organized crime and a Russian uh, background, but also the a- accusations by Soviet uh, Jewish uh, ref- uh, emigres to Israel, such as uh, a surgeon Yuli Noodleman. And, uh, and many others who backed Noodleman's allegations against Sharansky as a long-term Soviet police agent, something sounding like a an illegal, the Soviet illegal program. That's what it was called in an American context. But maybe there was also this uh, uh, Soviet illegal program for the Israeli context of some sort. So so it is the case that that was the, the, the cover program for uh for these uh, organized networks that was just not just organized crime but it was also obviously some kind of long-term intelligence operation to be able to spread the bottom half of the then soviet deep state into uh, key parts of the west united states and then also israel indeed and uh Turns out Fife and Gaffney, among others, both uh, had positions under Senator Henry Scoop Jackson as far as uh, staffers being involved during his uh, the later days of his um, of his 30-year Senate run, mainly in the 70s on into the early 80s. So that was uh, a lot of the neo, you know, neoconservative movement as we know it today was birthed in to an extent out of uh, out of Henry Scoop Jackson, the uh, the Democrat uh, cold warrior uh, senator. So uh, a lot of there's a, there's a lot of reasons there to be very intrigued by Douglas Fife uh, saying that he was in Moscow basically at the Russian uh, the Russian DOD counterpart, a Russian Pentagon counterpart on September 11th. So, and the reason that I thought of that was because this uh, the way that um, Harrell was setting the stage for his quote-unquote prophecy prediction 
of the Islamic fundamentalists hitting the phallic symbol and all that was that the a lot of the talk in Gaffney's uh, 9-11 podcast, the first interview was with Deborah Burlingame, and there was a strong emphasis on talking about the the sort of global, almost sound like monolithic conspiracy, global conspiracy threat of the conjunction of the Islamists, the Islamic supremacists, and that there was a... Um, a Sunni Shia coalition. Sharia supremacists that no, believe no, like no, actually they actually called Shia Shia supremacism. Actually, was the phrase that they were using, uh, and so meaning in terms of speaking specifically about the threat of Iran, they were making a lot of the quote unquote allegations by a federal judge that Iran had had a piece of some aspects of the nine eleven hijackers and uh so that they were the kind of phrases they were using the kinds of phrases that if they were used in a question of jewish power or zionist the global politic political power it would be immediately called uh anti-semitism and anti-semitic dog whistling uh maybe sometimes fairly often unfairly um but they were you know, they totally get away with these kinds of things. And the way that it's done is by utilizing the sort of the, the bringing to mind of this idea of this, uh, you know, this threat, this sort of dark otherly threat from over there that's going to attack your phallic symbols, you know. So there's something that is really deep about the programming uh, that continues onward in what I heard directly from Frank Gaffney, who, by the way, acknowledged Fife as a, his potential mentor, actually, not only as a friend, but as a potential political mentor. So I thought that was interesting. All right, back to the text. Solving 9-11, The Deception That Changed the World by Christopher Bolin, page 166. Uh, okay, Easter. Okay. When, quote, when Evans asked where the Arab terrorists would strike, Harrell said, quote, in Islamic theology, the phallic symbol is very important. Your biggest phallic symbol is New York City and your tallest building will be the phallic symbol they will hit, unquote. How could Harrell know in 1979 that, quote, Islamic fundamentalists, unquote, would attack the World Trade Center if he was not part of the planning? Quote, Isser Harrell prophesied that the tallest building in New York would be the first building hit by Islamic fundamentalists 21 years ago, unquote, Evans said in a 2004 interview. Seven years after Harrell's bizarre prediction, a team of senior Israeli intelligence agents, men who had worked directly under Issa Harrell for decades, obtained the security contract for the Port Authority, the agency that owned and operated the World Trade Center. The Israeli false flag terror attacks of 9-11, designed to create the, quote, war on terror, unquote, and drag the United States military into the Israeli-Arab conflict on, on, on the side of Israel, were evidently planned decades in advance. A team of senior Israeli intelligence veterans, men who had worked with Harrell since the founding of Israeli intelligence, received the security contract for the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey, PA, in uh, in 1987, according to a Washington Post article from April 12, 1987. The Port Authority manages operations at New York's airports, as it did at the World Trade Center 
prior to the complex being leased to Larry Silverstein in late July 2001. The security contract with Atwell Security of Tel Aviv, a company connected to the Mossad, was cancelled after the Port Authority learned that the firm was headed by Avraham Shalom Bendor, the former head of Israel's General Security Service, GSS, a.k.a. Shabak, or Shembet. The Atwell company appears to have been created only for the purpose of obtaining the security contract for the Port Authority and the World Trade Center. The Mossad needed to have control over the security of the Twin Towers in order for Issa Harrell's prediction to come true. Avraham Bendor, or Bendor, a.k.a. Abe Avrum or Avram Shalom, had been forced to resign as head of the GSS, which he ran from 1980 to 1986. Following the disclosure that he had ordered the execution of two detained Palestinian bus hijackers by having their skulls smashed with stones, and then lied about it. Quote, Avrum lied and kept lying, unquote, a senior security official involved in the Bus 300 affair told the Jerusalem Post in 1995. He failed because he was too sure of himself and too used to hearing how great he was, unquote. Shalom, the head of the GSS, was identified by an Israeli Justice Ministry report in December 1986 as having ordered the murder and subsequent cover-up of the two Palestinians captured in 1984. Shalom and ten other Shinbet agents were forced to resign, although President Chaim Herzog subsequently granted them all pardons. Shalom corrupted the GSS as well. Quote, some of the vices of the Shalom regime still plague the GSS, unquote. The Post reported in 1955, quote, one problem is the lack of parliamentary control over the GSS, unquote. This is an important observation because it indicates that the Shin Bet under Shalom had become a rogue agency. Quote, the most disturbing trend is the recurring episodes in which GSS agents provide misleading information to officials and the courts, unquote. The Post reported. Quote, the head of Shabak GSS has an unusual personal relationship with Prime Minister Shamir, partly perhaps because of Shamir's own past in the espionage business, unquote. The Jerusalem Post wrote in June 1991. Shalom had ordered the murders but tried to blame a senior army officer at the scene and later claimed that Shamir had given him a free hand. The former Ergun Ergun and Lehi terrorist Yitzhak Shamir, born Jazerniki uh, uh, in Belarus, was the prime minister responsible for Shinbet at the time. Shamir was a leader from the extreme right-wing Likud. After joining, after joining the Ergun terrorist group in 1935, he joined its most militant faction, Lehi, uh, a.k.a. the Stern Gang, in 1940. He is reported to have, a.k.a. the the the, the group that uh, tried to make uh, alliances with both uh, Hitler's Germany and uh, Stalinist Russia, and also sent letter bombs to a bunch of uh, high-level politicians in the UK, and of course the infamous letter bombs to Harry Truman the year before Truman recognized Israel. Back to the text, page 168, Solving 9-11, The Deception That Changed the World by Christopher Bolin. 
And by the way, I just want to point out that this was a crucial time too, if you think about the uh, Shin Bet in terms of the run-up, obviously, to that uh, Shin Bet were the ones that were uh, accused of having the connection to the Rabin assassination, uh, the whole operation surrounding it. And so you can see that domestically, there, this was a crucial uh, time also. And also, this is then the time of, you know, Sharansky's coming in and uh, the escalation of the Russian organized crime aspect beginning to really come in, especially as it's uh, talked about in the back of uh, Robert Friedman's book, Red Mafia, in those last chapters. And we will do some uh, antidote deep cortex of those last chapters that explain a lot of this uh, and include detail on that and how it relates to uh, Semyon Mogilevich and uh, Sharansky and uh, even uh, Russian gangsters that were the employers of uh, Robert Maxwell's sons after he died and through, via Nordex and uh, that all of that. So I just want to point out that that uh, Shalom being head of Sh uh, Shin Bet during this key portion of the 80s uh, is a crucial run-up to a lot of events and uh, and happened during a key time, uh, even in just uh, Israel's history, domestically. All right, back to the text, bottom of page 168 of Solving 9-11. Quote, Shamir was a leader from the extreme right-wing Likud. After joining the Ergun terrorist group in 1935, he joined its most militant faction, Lehi, in 1940. He is reported to have personally authorized the assassination of the United Nations representative in the Middle East, the Swedish Count Folk Bernadotte, in September 1948. Edward J. O. Sullivan, director of the Office of Special Plans at the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey, simply said that the contract with Atwell Security of Tel Aviv had been terminated because, quote, we are no longer satisfied with the agreement, unquote. The Washington Post reported in April 1987. O'Sullivan said the Port Authority's legal office told him not to comment on why he was killing the contract. O'Sullivan said he acted after a reporter inquired about the contract and Atwell's president, Avraham Bendor, acknowledged that he was also known as Avraham Shalom. Atwell, a subsidiary, a subsidiary of the Eisenberg Group, Shaul Eisenberg of the Mossad, had been chosen, quote, largely on the basis of Bendor's credentials, unquote, O'Sullivan said. Use of such al aliases in Israeli intelligence is common, the Washington Post reported. Quote, one intelligence expert said that even Bendor may not be the former Shin Bet chief's real name, unquote. Had the contract with Atwell Security not been terminated in 1987, it is very likely that the false flag terror attacks would have been carried out years earlier. The cancellation of the Atwell contract forced the Mossad to find other ways to get control of the security at the World Trade Center. Unquote. And just a brief aside, of course, there was also the first World Trade Center bombings that you got to look at all of the people surrounding the quote-unquote investigation into that, which would include uh, uh, people like Michael Cherkasky. Uh, people like Michael Chertoff, even people like maybe Giuliani. I can't remember uh, Giuliani uh, at the time. 
but uh, also that the the uh, alleged networks behind the bombing, uh, there was one of the key ele- one of the key elements was uh, stayed at a what uh, Robert Friedman, the uh, uh, aforementioned uh, author of Red Mafia, wrote an article identifying that there was a Mossad safe house that one of the one of the uh, alleged uh, perpetrators of the first World Trade Center bombing had stayed at. So this is a a thread. It wasn't like they just waited until they finally fully got their the security contract. But obviously, in order to pull off something so major as September 11th, this makes a lot of sense that they were they had to acquire the totality of the human security networks at the World Trade Center. Back to page 169 uh, in Solving 9-11, The Deception That Changed the World by Christopher Bolin in the chapter, The Architecture of Terror. Quote, a New York-based senior Israeli intelligence officer, Peter Zvi Malkin, had acted as a New York representative for Atwell Security of Tel Aviv in the negotiations with the, the PA, the Port Authority, O'Sullivan said. Malkin is famous for being the Mossad agent who grabbed Adolf Eichmann during the Israeli kidnapping in Argentina in 1960. The executives running the Port Authority in 1987, the mayor and his first deputy, certainly must have been aware of the PA's decision to hire a company run by a senior Mossad agent to provide security for New York's airports, ports, commuter trains, and the World Trade Center. The people who made the decision to give the security contract to Avraham Bendor's Atwal Security of Tel Aviv must have known that Zvi Malkin was a senior Mossad agent. They had um, negotiated I don't know how, with him after all. Just a note, I believe the mayor at this time would have been uh, Ed Koch, who was a noted uh, Zionist partisan as the uh, Democratic mayor of New York in the 80s. So I don't know how... How interrelated that is to this, just uh, pointing out there that Koch would have been the mayor at this time. So. Yes, yeah, so actually, we'll, we'll, we're coming up to that on this next page. Uh, he's one of Koch's guys is uh, crucial to these affairs, I think. I think you're exactly right, Greg. Okay, page 170 of Solving 9-11 by Christopher Bolin, The Architecture of Terror. Quote, the executive director of the Port Authority in 1987 was Stephen Berger, 1985 through 1990. Berger was described by Thomas J. Luke of the New York Times in August 1987 as, quote, a man at the center of New York City's economy, definitely pulling strings in business and government alike, unquote. Today, Berger is chairman of Odyssey Investment Partners, a private New York investment firm that specializes in private corporate transactions. Berger is a member of the board of New York's Citizen Budget Commission, CBC, with fellow Zionists Larry Silverstein and Felix Rohatin. Philip D. Kaltenbacher was the chairman of the Port Authority's Board of Commissioners from 1985 to 1990. Prior to becoming a PA commissioner in 1983, Kaltenbacher had been chairman of the New Jersey Republican State Committee. Kaltenbacher's uh, father, Joseph, was a founder of the New Jersey chapter of the American Jewish Committee and a former member of the National Board of Governors of the AJC, a major Zionist organization. Stanley Brezidoff, who later became executive director of the PA in 1990, 
was deputy mayor for operations and first deputy mayor under Mayor Edward Irving Koch, 1978 through 89. At the time, the Port Authority's security contract was being negotiated with Zvi Malkin, a well-known senior Mossad agent. Brezhnev uh, was, quote, the second most powerful official in the, in the Koch administration and was the government's chief operating officer, often serving as acting mayor in Mr. Koch's absence, unquote, according to the New York Times. Brezhnev directed the day-to-day operations of city agencies, including police, fire, and transportation. It is hard to imagine that Brezhnev, whose Yiddish-speaking grandparents had immigrated to the United States in the early 1900s from Russia and Austria, was unaware of the deal to give the PA security contract to Atwell Security of Tel Aviv. Malkin was, after all, a legendary figure among Zionist Jews. Malkin was one of the Israeli intelligence agents involved in the kidnapping of Adolf Eichmann in Buenos Aires in 1960 and wrote a book entitled Eichmann in My Hands about his role in the kidnapping. It was none other than Iser Harel, then head of the Mossad, who had sent Malkin and six others on the mission to kidnap Eichmann. Harel had also worked closely with Shimon Perez and Teddy Kolek in the pre-state Haganah militia of the 1940s, when they had been responsible for procuring weapons and smuggling them to Zionist forces in Palestine. Other agents on the Mossad team involved the Eichmann kidnapping were Avraham Shalom Bendor and Raphael Dirty Rafi Aitan, the senior Mossadnik, not the chief of staff with the same name, who ran the Jonathan Pollard espionage operation against the United States in the, in the 1980s. Aitan later told the Israeli press, that he had been made a scapegoat to cover for Shimon Perez and Yitzhak Shamir, Israeli politicians who knew about Aitan's espionage network in America, but defended themselves and the state by claiming it was, quote, a rogue operation, unquote. Aitan headed a special spying unit known as the Scientific Liaison Office, aka LACAM or LACAM, I'm going to add, and directed a team of agents working out of the Israeli embassy in Washington when the Pollard spy operation was exposed in 1985. For Aitan, a minister in the Israeli government, the United States was considered, quote-unquote, the enemy. That Aitan, a member of the Israeli cabinet, would say to one of, the Isra- one of Israel's largest daily newspapers in 1997 that the United States is an enemy of Israel and that his position would not be challenged is something that would confound most Americans. Quote, I failed in the Pollard affair just as I failed in other intelligence operations beyond enemy lines, unquote. Aitan told the newspaper Yediot Aharonot in June 1997, that is a lot of an intelligence officer. That is the lot of an intelligence officer who runs complex intelligence operations. When you work a lot and do a lot, especially in the intelligence field, you win some and you lose some, unquote, he said. Quote, nobody knows either about your successes or your failures. It doesn't cause a fuss, but this was a big fuss. You take such a possibility into consideration, but there is nothing you can do about it, unquote. Okay, I'm going to just finish this section, even though we're a little bit past the, uh, uh, the specific uh, aspect of uh, Shaul Eisenberg here, but I think this is an uh, interesting and important background, too. All right, page 172 of Solving 9-11, The Deception That Changed the World by Christopher Bolin. 
quote, I'm surprised that he I'm surprised he would admit this, unquote. Joseph DeGenova, the U.S. attorney who prosecuted the case, said, quote, but this is basically all stuff that the evidence in the case shows, unquote. DeGenova said Aitan's statement was unusual and that it contradicted the, quote, official Israeli position, unquote, that the Pollard case had been an unauthorized, quote unquote, rogue operation. And in that Aitan, quote, does not refer to the United States as an ally, which is regrettable, unquote. Aitan's statements about the uh, Aitan's statement about the Pollard operation being an operation, quote, beyond enemy lines, unquote, reveals how Israeli intelligence veterans view the Israeli-U.S. relationship, something DeGeneva seemed unable to grasp or articulate. And I just want to make one quick point here, and then, Greg, you go for it. I just want to point out that this is related to what we've pointed out over and over again about the fact that these key uh, leaders from the Israeli government, including uh, prime ministers uh, and heads of uh, Israeli military intelligence like Ehud Barak or uh, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, that they both track back to this uh, uh, Sayeret Bakal Special Operations Division in the Israeli Armed Forces that is uh, that I've sort of described as basically reconnaissance, reconnaissance behind enemy lines. And so I think it is crucial to understand that this, that it's blatant. There's some blatant history here about the way that the certain aspects of the Israeli leadership do not see the United States as this traditional friend and ally. And so that's why it makes it even more egregious that the cyber czar under Biden is Ann Neuberger who not only is married to a high-level APAC official, but also they are deeply invested uh, in contributing to APAC, but also that Sayeret Metcall, i.e. potentially in an American context where it's seen as reconnaissance behind enemy lines, special forces like Netanyahu and, uh, and uh, Barack, that that, that that unit helped save her parents' lives. You know, so there is something really, really, really uh, wrong here that needs to be pointed out over and over again, I think, until everyone gets how how outrageous and egregious this uh, state of affairs is. And I think understanding the background of the context of the Pollard operation by its one of its main operative handlers that went all the way to the top of the government, but the main handler of ITON expressing directly that this was an operation behind enemy lines, which then fits into this question of the Pollard operation, not even really being just about Israel, but about being uh, the uh, the uh, exfiltration of key uh, um, uh, intelligence documents of Soviet interests, especially in relationship to uh, exposing the... Uh, the heart of U.S. signals intelligence and the uh, the raisin the acronym raisin uh, uh, documents that was the handbook for uh, all U.S. signals intelligence. Yeah, uh, I couldn't agree with you more. And that it has to continue to be um, just reminded and hammered home the importance of uh, of these names and this network and these operatives. And I couldn't help but think that maybe as somebody like a Degenova's 
purposely not understanding that whole thing about as you relayed back to the Pollard case as, as um, going back to him and his wife, of course, being players in this extended network. And of course, the, uh, the attorney for Scooter Libby, the pardoned, uh, disgraced Iraq war architect under Trump. So uh, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of, a lot of, so much goes back to these uh, particular networks of people and we constantly needs to be uh reiterated just who these people are and what they represent both from a from an israeli perspective and from an american perspective from a multinational perspective so well i think that's very perceptive in terms of the question a little bit more questioning of uh of the geneva even by boleyn here i think would, would be definitely warranted and which would also of course then have led boleyn into questioning the Trump Russia and De Geneva's central place and all of that. And as you pointed out, uh, the, their background there, but it also, they were apparently, uh, of representation, I believe to Dmitry Firtash, a uh, key Russian Ukrainian yes, yes. network oligarch there, which Michael Chertoff also represented. And, uh, so this should have led in there. And I would just point out that it, I think it's very likely that Genova, the prosecutor on the Pollard case, obviously he helped cover up that it was a network affair and that it was not. There was a whole uh, Mister X committee that facilitated Pollard. Someone helped put Pollard in place. Someone helped Pollard get know exactly what he was, uh, where to find what he was looking for, as tasked by the Israelis. Uh, and this apparently went very close to the certain elements, close to the top. And uh, De Geneva must have been part of, uh, at the very least, allowing the whole network that facilitated Pollard to stay in place. In a certain way, you could say that De Geneva played the same role in relationship to the Pollard uh, scandal that someone like Bill Barr played in relationship to, quote unquote, Trump Russia, uh, or maybe a Mueller kind of position where the uh, maybe actually bar in terms of, you know, being the attorney general who was ultimately going to be responsible for uh, deciding how far to push criminal uh, indictments and investigations into Trump, Russia, and, uh, and uh, just allowing Mueller to have as few meager, measly, uh, limited hangout uh, indictments of certain aspects of Trump Russia, but included even people like, you know, Manafort, uh, sort of crucial uh, players, but it never got to the depth of it. And so in a way you might say that De Geneva was even more effective as a prosecutor in helping limit the scope of the investigation into the Pollard affair than even someone like Barr ultimately was in limiting the scope, or Ro even Rod Rosenstein maybe, of limiting the scope of the investigation into quote-unquote uh, Trump Russia. All right, back to the text, Solving 9-11, The Deception That Changed the World by Christopher Bolin, bottom of page 172, quote, Iton said he, had, he has close relations with senior Cuban leaders, including Fidel Castro, who, by the way, was said by uh, one of the uh, leaders of the mass peace action code pink call had allegedly said it doesn't really matter who did 9-11. And they agreed with Fidel Castro uh, having allegedly said that it doesn't matter who did 9-11, just the, about who took advantage of it in order to push back against Kevin Danaher, 
who had just said, it does matter who did 9-11 and we should look at demolitions at the World Trade Center, <laughs> I think is what he was beginning to talk about. And he was heavily discouraged in the chat uh, by even his long-term partner, I believe wife, Medea Benjamin, in the chat. Don't go there. Don't go there. He went there. And then uh, and then mass peace action and code pink to all push back against him. Why does it matter? It doesn't matter. We're with Fidel Castro, who apparently had a close relationship with Aitan, uh, who helped organize the Pollard affair and who helped apparently help, you know, was part of this network that was uh, part of the long term uh, World Trade Center operation, which ultimately apparently became 9-11. All right. Interesting. Uh, all right. Quote. Aitan said he has close relations with senior Cuban leaders, including Fidel Castro, and has helped develop Cuba's agriculture, uh, agricultural infrastructure with Israeli irrigation equipment, chemicals, pesticides, and fertilizers, along with agricultural advisors. According to Aitan, the 10 Israelis actively doing business in Cuba for the past five years, 1992 through 1997, quote, have more influence than Russia had in the last 30 years, unquote. The business has developed Cuba's corn, citrus fruit, and tomato farming for export, and Aitan represented, quote, a long list of Israeli companies in Cuba, unquote. Quote, we are changing agriculture in Cuba, unquote, Aitan said, adding that his business violated the U.S. embargo and had made U.S. officials, quote, very angry, unquote. He declined to identify his business partners in Cuba, citing a U.S. law that penalizes foreigners doing business in Cuba who use confiscated American property. Aitan's revealing comments were published in the Washington Times of June 22, 1997. Unquote. And then it goes into uh, who is Zvi Malkin, uh, who was this, uh, the, uh, the uh, New York, the security consultant who helped, uh, I maybe we should read this too. I don't know, Greg. Uh, this you know is the uh, actually. Yeah, real quick on the Cuba factor. Yeah, let's go ahead and read that. Um, but real quick on the Cuba that um, that begins to start to raise some questions of exactly you know what Castro's Cuba may and may not have represented over the years in terms of uh this uh these Israelis uh what was it quoted as having more influence than Russia had in what the last. 30 years of the cold war leading up to uh leading up to the early 90s when this uh when these when this uh quote was uh was attributed and so it, it raises a lot of questions and of course you know we that's something like we'll uh be talking about more over time as far as like uh our perceptions of even like some of the countries that have been uh elevated and that are seen as uh you know the way cuba is perceived as far as uh so there's, there's a lot of questions there and i mean i think people can get at what i'm getting at there in terms of the uh what exactly do the cubas and the venezuelas of the world represent in the bigger grand picture of things geopolitically and otherwise and so this it's a, a little thing like that raises raises some questions on that front so uh, yes it yes it does it does a lot um and it also even then plays into the questions again of Obama and the even aspects of quote unquote Trump Russia, the 11 9 operation, the Alfred McCoy article about America waking up to find its power diminished in the world after the Trump years, 
and then how certain elements, including obviously some of these Israeli elements, might have looked askance at the Obama administration's move to create, uh, to open, open up relations with Cuba directly. And over and over, this is what we should actually then turn back to for an antidote deep cortex is the um, Armageddon Network, I believe that's uh, by Michael Saba, which really describes how this crew that was probably surrounding the Pollard affair from the American side, the, the kind of network that we've already talked about a little bit in terms of Pearl, <laughs> Pearl, Fife, Ladine, the, this whole uh, crew, what they were actually doing in terms of the tied-in aspect of the uh, Israeli technology transfer and the economics uh, of the Israeli state in terms of uh, looking like it was, you know, not only intervening and stepping in between certain relationships, trade relationships, including weaponry, but also just basic economics uh, in terms of a, a Cold War dynamic. Uh, but more and more, we begin to see as almost like an intervention uh, and uh, we just keep coming back to the motive of the Brexit and of the breaking up of the European Union and how this was obviously the motive there not not to disparage the actual pop you know the legitimate populist desire and serious criticism of the European Union and nationalist uh, economic politics, but. In terms of the geopolitics and the geopol geopolitical motives and what we know now of the network analysis of the actual operatives who help do the hybrid warfare, information warfare aspects from everything to Brexit into then 11-9 Trump Russia, uh, quote unquote, uh, that it was there was some very strong uh, cotton, uh, uh, an, an alignment of agenda between Russia and Israel in relationship to breaking up the European Union. And then I think that that is parallel to what we see more and more in an understanding of, quote-unquote, behind uh, enemy lines at the highest levels of the Israeli government and how that would play out then in a geopolitical strategy focused around disrupting or intervening uh, or men in the middle attacking even uh, certain American economic uh, networked relations around the world. And then eventually we're going to get now then into the current dynamic uh, in under the COVID, the global COVID regime and what exactly it has done in terms of the uh, global shipping and something like, you know, 20x prices in terms of shipping uh, China to the United States, uh, pre COVID to now things like that. And then thinking again about all these key positions that are, uh, certain people who are high level in aspects of the global shipping cyber networks. Think about, uh, Ghislaine's, what we know now is potentially husband, her covert husband, Scott Borgeson, who she apparently bought her a hideout in New Hampshire with who was the co-founder CEO of Cargo Metrics what he stated they were going they were the NSA of global shipping and then the background uh, of all of that uh, with um, high level uh, Israeli shipping magnets connected to things like Zim shipping which of course Eisen Shaul Eisenberg at one point owned uh, 40 something high 40% 
of Zim Shipping, the Israeli state shipping company. Um, but the O'Fair brothers, as part of a, a key key uh, on the board of uh, of Cargo Metrics, Scott Borgerson, Ghislaine Maxwell's covert uh, covert uh, husband. Uh, so there is, uh, and one last thing, of course, Zim Shipping moves out. They break their their uh, their lease at the World Trade Center. I believe it cost them fifty thousand dollars to break their lease week maybe weeks at most early into the realm of days before the September 11th operation vacating the trade towers Zim shipping go look that up on the history Commons 9/11 timeline uh, and uh, and look at the background there and so I think that is a, a crucial factor here that we will eventually get to is this question of global geoeconomics and uh, and and if if people like Iton and people like Netanyahu are running operations in the United States as behind enemy lines just think of like now what we know about the GOP and how clo- how owned the GOP is not just by APAC and the Israel lobby but now what we know about the highest levels uh, of the GOP in terms of a tight asset relationship to aspects of Russian intelligence and thinking about Netanyahu being facilitated by the GOP leadership to come storm the U.S. Uh, Capitol when when the American president, Barack Obama, was working to expand American influence by de-escalating the militarized and the militant sort of enemy uh, image between the United States and Israel and reincorporate the uh, uh, an economic relationship. Uh, and and so thinking about that that now as Netanyahu storming the, the American capital, think of it as a run up to you know one six in, in a certain way, but at a much higher geopolitical level, I would say. And so we begin to understand some of the bigger aspects of what's going on here in terms of the geo geoeconomics behind a lot of these espionage uh, networks, I would think. And a lot of the same people, probably, in terms of what you described as the storming of the Capitol of March 2015, also um, how much, how many, how much overlap was there in the uh, in Netanyahu coming to Congress in September 2002 and calling for uh, war in Iraq and why why the American why the U.S. has to wage this war? And of course, you know the whole precursor Netanyahu. Storming of the Capitol in March 2015 to 1-6. I mean, of course, if you look at the networks like uh, you know, Breitbart, con- made in America, conceived in Israel, and you can see right there the uh, the height, you called it the Death Star of the 2016 campaign. You can see right there the uh, long-term um, psychological the facilitators of the narrative that would lead to January 6th and the idea of the stolen election comes directly from here. And, of course, we've talked before and we'll talk again in the future of even the idea of the Tea Party as being like this... Uh, foreign attack on america so we'll we'll talk about that in the future but uh it's something we've discussed among ourselves we talked about a couple of times on streams but uh we'll talk more about that in the future so well thank you very much for bringing that up and that just reminds me that in the uh the last show that i produced for the uh kkfi community radio station in kansas city understanding israel palestine beyond the walls i interviewed allison weir about this uh, analytical article it's actually more of like a paper that she wrote that she's been updating uh, that 
is her current title is international campaign is criminalizing criticism of Israel as single quote anti-Semitism. And she points out, and she pointed out in the interview, and I had not uh, real, I had not realized this or forgotten this, that similarly to the way that you're talking, that you're talking about reminding us about Netanyahu storming the uh, American Capitol Congress in 2002 to be one of the main agitators for the American invasion of Iraq the very next spring, that the very year after the American invasion uh, of Iraq, that Natan Sharansky who had come up with this whole definition of the uh, the new anti-Semitism based on the 3D uh, definition of it about, um, what is it called? Demonizing, uh, delegitimizing, and the third one. I forget what the third one is. Um, but that uh, in the wake of, of Sharansky putting this together, the 3D test of anti-Semitism, to demonize Israel, um, double standard, double standard. You have to sort of speak every other ill about every other country in the world if you're going to say something bad about Israel and then delegitimize Israel, i.e., quote-unquote, right to exist, i.e., uh, ethno-state, i.e., original ethnic cleansing operation. You can't talk about any of that. Uh, or to Sharansky, if you're Jewish and like me and you uh, reject the uh, claimed, self-proclaimed Jewish ethno state of all the Jewish people in the world that is involved in a apartheid regime and a long term uh, genocidal project of some scope in relationship to the uh, Palestinian people and culture and nation, that if you reject the the Israeli atrocities against the Palestinian people, such as the latest round of assault on, on Gaza, then you are an un-Jew. That is the article that Cheronsky recently wrote, un-Jews, talking about the long history of uh, Jews who reject uh, these aspects of quote-unquote political self-determination. Of course, I believe as a Jew and as a Jewish American, I obviously have political self-determination to be able to have a publicly demonstrated uh, moral opposition to the usage of uh, my Jewish identity in relationship to this uh, self-defined Jewish state. But meanwhile, Sharansky, as he's pushing the combination of, remember, he's also pushing the, uh, what we always talk about, about the, the book justifying the, uh, the invasion of Iraq as a way of spreading democracy, as a way to counter uh, terrorism and extremism, uh, thinking of things such as Shia supremacy or Sharia supremacy or whatever way they will put it, that at the same time he's doing that, he was in the U.S. Congress in 2004 making the case to uh, solidify this new made up definition this newly incorporated israeli centric definition of anti-semitism uh outside of the traditional and historically understood notion of anti-semitism as specifically uh, anti-jewish uh, bigotry against the person and against the people but now to include the crit the criticism of state power that he was the leader to push this definition into the heart of the uh, American government, that it then got taken up by the uh, 
by the anti-Semitism uh, newly created position of czar in the State Department and then incorporated as the U.S. State Department definition of quote-unquote anti-Semitism that is now being deployed around the entire country, actually around the entire world, because similar things happening in in uh, in Europe. Uh, but of course, this question of the suppression, the assault on core political speech and press in an American context, a lot of this is justified out of uh, the operations uh, that Sharonsky led the way in, in terms of his own behind the enemy's assault on the American Congress and uh, in collaboration with sedition, seditious elements uh, in an American context that are attempting to undermine our core uh, political values of free speech, free inquiry, free press, free association, uh, freedom of conscience, religion, and all of that. So th I think that's a, a crucial consideration, Greg, in terms of un seeing it as that, that 2002 move by Netanyahu, then followed up by the year after. Uh, and I would just point out one last thing is, of course, it looks like the timing of that is to make sure that you can begin to incorporate in an official fashion anybody who might point out, such as the book, The Israel Lobby by Mearsheimer and Walt, chapter eight, pointing out how the totality of the Israel lobby was front and center and core to the uh, agitation for the war in Iraq that at the year after that, remember even something like um, Leslie Wexner, the Wexner analysis, Frank Luntz being sponsored to help PR pitch the Iraq war is not about Israeli interests, but about American interests. So in the time frame after that, you would understandably have someone like Natan Sharansky weaponizing the new definition of anti-Semitism that he helped make up and construct and push into public consciousness at the heart of the U.S. Congress, trying to make a point that would help make sure that anyone who would bring up the obvious facts and political forensics that would show that the Israel lobby was core to the U.S. invasion and disastrous, that was going to become obviously disastrous U.S. invasion of Iraq, could then be shut down and uh, targeted as, quote-unquote, anti-Semitic. There are so many consequences to not um, willing, willfully or unwillingly not understanding the significance of, uh, and it goes so far beyond just whether or not there was foreign interference in an American election. I mean, there's so many wide-ranging uh, consequences of uh, of this of this operation what we call the 11 9 operation that uh and also of course going back to 9 11 as we talk about from 9 11 to 11 9 there's so many consequences of not wanting to like of for whatever reason not putting the full picture together and like linking the linking back to each other of course there's a lot of people in our milieu who will who see for example september 11th but don't put together like the the trump operation as an extension of this because of whatever information comes out of uh Certain realms of the alternate, what we what we know is the alternative media regarding, uh, but there's so many consequences to not having like this full picture, and it go and it ranges all the way from um, not understanding actual um, hostile foreign uh, um, operations taking place domestically in your own country, and in some cases becoming cheerleaders, knowingly or unknowingly, for operations that are very hostile to your own uh, country and your own well-being the nation to the deeper aspects of things such as like even the uh 
the propaganda elements behind uh, going to war in Iraq and just it's a there's a lot there's a lot of there's a lot of layers to the um, what people miss if they don't even try to understand like the dynamics of something like uh, linking together this catalyzing you know event of September 11th with the uh, with events that are ongoing to this day domestically and particularly extending it back to a specific extended global network of operatives and uh, propagandists. So, Yes, exactly, Greg. Thank you for making that point. And I, I think we should begin to head towards closing this um, recording, but I really would like eventually to come back and finish the rest of this chapter, starting with who is Zvi Malkin, Peter Malkin, uh, on page 173 of Solving 9-11, The Deception That Changed the World by Christopher Bolin. But I think in, in terms of our maybe our remaining 10 minutes, I would like to cut to a, a, a few key paragraphs just a little bit forward from here that deal with um, Maurice Greenberg, Kroll, Kissinger, and then Shaul Eisenberg, and then briefly mention this uh, paper that uh, I, I mentioned in the very beginning uh, about some very some other pieces around this background of Eisenberg, just so that we put that uh, onto the table uh, before our future shows on the topic. Does that sound cool with you, Greg? Yeah, that sounds great. Let's do it. All right, so jumping ahead now to page 176 of Solving 9-11, The Deception That Changed the World by Christopher Bolin. We go, uh, quote, in 1993, Maurice Greenberg became a partner and co-owner of Jules, Kroll, Jules Kroll's company when AIG bought 20% of Kroll. Greenberg is very close to Henry Kissinger, who became chairman of AIG's International Advisory Board in 1987. Greenberg was deeply involved in China in the 1980s, right, where Ki Henry Kissinger represented AIG. Through the China trade, Greenberg became close to Shaul Eisenberg, the leader of the Asian section of the Israeli intelligence service Mossad, an agent for the sales of sophisticated military equipment to the Chinese military. Eisenberg was the owner of Atwell Security of Tel Aviv. Greenberg created a joint venture with the founder of Amdocs. Greenberg's insurance subsidiary in Israel called AIG Golden is a joint venture with Morris Kahn's Oric Group, the parent company of Amdocs, an Israeli private equity firm with cable and telecom investments. Kahn was an original investor in Amdocs Limited, of which his Oric Group is the parent company. Oric is meant to signify, quote-unquote, golden from the Latin, hence the gilded name of the AIG subsidiary. Jules Kroll is connected with the key 9-11 players, Kenneth Bialkin and Larry Silverstein, through the Citizens Budget Commission of New York. Kroll's wife, Lynn Corda Kroll, the vice chairman of the United Jewish Appeal, UJA Federation of New York, is likewise connected to Silverstein, former national chairman of the UJA, the biggest fundraising organization for the state of Israel. And then it goes into the connection between Maurice Greenberg and Jules Kroll as 
are connected to the key players of 9-11 in so many ways that their connection would fill a book. And then it goes through all of that. So we'll stop there for now on page 177 of, the, of uh, Solving 9-11, The Deception That Changed the World, the chapter, The Architecture of Terror. We may go back some pages to make sure that we uh, get back to the specifics of Malkin and, uh, and the attempt to get uh, Israeli intelligence in charge of World Trade Center security uh, in the 80s rather than in the uh, run-up to 9-11 in the late 90s. But let's just point out that Kissinger also is not all, was almost the head of the 9-11 commission. And, and also obviously the co-chair of the center for the national interest with Hank Greenberg. And that still, still almost no analysis of that whole connection there. And related to Trump, Russia, the Mayflower hotel, the background of what we pointed out about how many CNN, HBO guys were involved over there. And, uh, and so that, and, and then who of course was also there on the advisory board, including, uh, Dove Zakheim or my former Senator Pat Roberts here from Kansas, the, uh, maybe the key Senator to, uh, close down or to stand down the, uh, original NSA whistleblower Russell Tice well before the the Snowden affair who was pointing out that there was uh, certain kinds of blackmail operations being run via uh, National uh, Security Administration. Yeah, um, there was an event at the uh, CNI, I believe it was in 2016, the year of the 2016 presidential campaign, and uh, Pat Roberts and... One other senator whose name escapes me, um, I believe Republican Jeff Sessions and Democrat, and I could be getting this mixed up, but uh, definitely one of the honorees, and uh, Pat Roberts was uh, was giving an award on behalf of the Center for the National Interest. Um, there were two senators that were awarded, and Roberts was involved in awarding these senators. One of the senators was Hillary Clinton's running mate in 2016, uh, Tim Kaine. So. <laughs> Very interesting. All right, and so finishing up here and in, for the time being, closing the loop just a little bit back to this question of uh, Israel-China via Shaul Eisenberg, let's just look at the um, article. This is the, the sort of mainstreaming article. By the way, you can go look at uh, Expose the Enemy, John Swin's site, for a bunch of really good resources on this whole area, including Israel, China. So go by check the way, that real out. Quick, uh, by the way, real quick, I have it. Um, Pat Roberts awarded, um, Tim, uh, Pat Roberts awarded, uh, was awarded at the same ceremony as Tim Kaine. He was awarded by General Michael Hayden, and Tim Kaine was awarded by Senator Jeff Sessions. Speaking among other people were Dimitri Simis, Dov Zakheim, and also, Michael Hayden taking part of this. That's very interesting. Uh, Hayden as well involved with the Center for the National Interest. So make of that what you will. And Hayden working directly for Chertoff at the Chertoff Group. And what we know about Chertoff, not only the Israeli connections, which are deep, and that's actually there's part uh, where we'll go back to in this chapter that mentioned the, some of the Chertoff Israeli intelligence background via his mother and how, how deep that is. 
but also Chertoff as on the uh, in, in, uh, advisory board or invested alongside Jeffrey Epstein in Carbon 911, the uh, Israeli intelli- Israeli military intelligence uh, nine, American 911 system uh, takeover pitch uh, that uh, that included uh, also fellow investors like uh, Ehud Barak. Ehud Barak, I believe, was on the advisory board, though. Victor Vexelberg, uh, key Trump uh, supporter Elliot Tawil, Peter Thiel, I believe, uh, on there, too. Michael Chertoff's there. But Michael Chertoff also, as I mentioned before, as having represented at some point uh, key oligarch Dmitry Firtash. Uh, so this is uh, someone like uh, Hayden, Michael Hayden, the only person I believe to ever have been the head of both the NSA and the CIA, the head of the NSA on September 11th, by the way, right? That, uh, that his working for Chertoff and the Chertoff group, and it reminds his, he sort of reminds me a little bit of like someone like a Ravich, some, uh, Diana Ravich, who also I believe worked uh, for, uh, for Chertoff with the Chertoff group, who was also tied into the Cheney group. Um, so this is, uh, these are some other things here that need to be tied in, uh, in terms of the, uh, 11, nine operation and how obvious some of these names are so obvious Chertoff, Dovzakheim. These are infamous characters, Henry Kissinger, Greenberg, Maurice, uh, Hank Greenberg. These are central and infamous characters around key nodal points surrounding September 11th. And, uh, and then the fact that they're all there then at this key nodal point, uh, around, uh, around, uh, Trump, Russia and Chertoff's a little bit more, you know, he's wasn't so tightly involved with the CNI, but the link to, uh, Firtash, I think, uh, brings him directly into the fold of the 11, nine, uh, operation and quote unquote, Trump, Russia. But let's look at this, uh, article. Oh, go for it, Greg, if you got something no, I was just, uh, yeah, uh, I was just, I was just thinking of what you're saying there, and even like the Chertoffs, and it's it's interesting because it, it's kind of tricky there because, you know, Chertoff seems to perhaps be the, the intersection of like the, what we've identified maybe aspects of the neocon split in terms of uh those who are for Trump and those who are against Trump and all the ideological um, aspects that that entails, but clearly it would appear that a. Uh, Chertoff was playing some type of like limiting role, controlled role within like his uh, stated, I think more or less more publicly stated opposition to like the, the some of the worst, some of the more negative aspects of like a Trump administration, but in terms of uh, shaping like the national security narrative and the election narrative and all. This. So it's, it's interesting. So that would be something, you know, try that's a Chertoff would be an interesting, uh, interesting character in in that regard, and basically, uh, and Hayden, Chertoff's Hayden, right hand, Hayden too, also yes. in that way too. Yes, and Hayden is basically like Chertoff's like right hand man in many ways. I think uh, they're very they're very close to each other. Like Hayden will publicly represent himself in interviews as being of the Chertoff group, and he'll be out there. And Hayden is more publicly opposed to Trump in terms of uh, his public uh, statements and all that. So, at the same, but still showing up at the Center for the National Interest to award your former Senator, uh, Pat Roberts. So. Yes. Okay, so then in finishing up with a few data points around uh, Shaul Eisenberg, 
coup, reminder, right, behind this Atwell security out of Tel Aviv push to, uh, to try to take over the World Trade Center security in the 80s. All right, here is the, one of the mainstream articles from Newsweek titled, How Israel Used Weapons and Technology to Become an Ally of China. But I would re- just one more time remind people to go check out John Swin's Expose the Enemy for a, a wider uh, array of sources on some of this background and relationship. The, this article was by Yaakov Katz and Amir Bobot on uh, May 11th, 2017. And it shows a picture of Israeli Brigadier General Eli Sharvit left welcomes Chinese Rear Admiral Yang Junfei in Haifa, Israel in 2012. Credit is Israel Defense Forces. And uh, so this is close then, I guess, to the port where uh, China ultimately uh, financed the, the uh, port, who owns the Israeli port there, I believe, in Haifa now at this point. Okay, quote, the secret circuitous journey began late one night in February 1979 when an unmarked Boeing 707 took off from Ben-Gurion Airport in Tel Aviv, Israel. Roughly 15 hours later, after a stop in the southern Israeli resort town of Ailat and a refueling break in Kolkata, India, the plane landed in Guangzhou, China, where a group of German-speaking Chinese navigators boarded the aircraft for its fourth and final journey to a sealed-off military base on the outskirts of Beijing. There, they went to a nearby compound. The quote-unquote foreigners, as the Chinese referred to the group aboard, barely spoke to one another, assuming Chinese officials had bugged the cabins. If there was something important to discuss, they went out into the cold, polluted night. The Chinese thought the group consisted of foreign businessmen who had connections with several leading international defense companies, including some from Israel. But that was just a cover in reality, the delegation included Gabriel Gador, the CEO of Israel Aerospace Industries, the leading government-owned defense company, along with senior representatives from the Israeli Foreign and Defense Ministries. The Israelis were just as confused about whom they were dealing with. Quote, were they engineers, intelligence operatives, military officers, unquote, recalled one member of the Israeli delegation who spoke on the condition of anonymity because he wasn't authorized to reveal details of the trip. Quote, they all wore these quote-unquote mouse suits, tunics. We had no way of knowing who we were even talking to, unquote. Until that winter day, Israeli defense officials had never been to China. The two countries did not have diplomatic ties, and nobody on the Israeli side, except for the members of the delegation, the prime minister, the defense minister, and a handful of others knew about the trip. If word got out, Israel knew that the Americans would be furious. Unquote. An aside, remember that in some of our antidote deep cores and maybe other discussions where we reference the uh, Seeds of Fire by Gordon Thomas, it refers to relationships especially in terms of covert intelligence around certain things, weaponry, and that went before this. And uh, we pointed that out at the time. So I'm just pointing out that this is the overt sort of limited hangout history of this, uh, the 
deeper relationship. But it tells some of the details of this very specific and very important moment. Okay, back to this uh, Newsweek article titled How Israel Used Weapons and Technology to Become an Ally of China by Yaakov Katz and Amir Bobot. Quote, uh, Until that winter day, Israeli defense officials had never been to China. The two countries did not have diplomatic ties and nobody on the Israeli side except for the members of the delegation, the prime minister, the defense minister, and a handful of others knew about the trip. If word got out, Israel knew that the Americans would be furious. And aside, we'll see that maybe some quote-unquote Americans might not have been furious but might have been involved. <laughs> so we'll, we'll finish off with that. Okay. Quote, the delegation was so worried that for the week they spent in Beijing, they weren't allowed to contact anyone back home. A mother of one of the participants had died while he was in China, but there was no way to let him know until he headed back. The Chinese were also apprehensive. They did not want to aggravate their traditional allies, the Soviet Union and the Arab bloc, by doing business with Israel. But each side had an interest in working with the other. In the aftermath of the Cultural Revolution, China began embracing capitalism and opening up trade to the West. The U.S. was on the verge of restoring ties to Beijing. And with the Iranian revolution underway, Israel had lost one of its primary arms customers. China, Israeli leaders hoped, could fill that vacuum. The man leading the effort was Saul Eisenberg, a Jewish billionaire who, like 20,000 other Holocaust refugees, had fled to Shanghai after World War II. Eisenberg later built a financial empire in the Far East, becoming one of the first Westerners to do business in China, Japan, and Korea. He used these ties to interest China in Israeli weaponry and even donated his private plane to transport the Israeli delegation on that maiden flight to Beijing in 1979. Eisenberg was familiar with Israeli defense products from other deals he had helped broker throughout Asia. After a series of preliminary meetings with the Chinese, he returned to Israel with a shopping list, an unorganized mix of missiles, radar, artillery shells, and armor, and urged that the government send a delegation. Prime Minister Menachem Begin approved the trip but deferred questions regarding the shopping list to Defense Minister Ezer Weizmann whom he ordered to personally approve what his Israeli companies could and could not sell. During their stay, the quote-unquote foreigners presented the Chinese with brochures featuring different weapons they claimed they could get from Israel. The Chinese were impressed but did not make any commitments. Over the next year, the Israelis made additional trips, some involving Israeli Air Force planes, which had their Blue Star of David insignias removed to keep their mission secret. By then, the Chinese knew they were working directly with the Israeli government. Once Beijing finalizing, once Beijing finalizing the shopping, the, that's what it says, the Israeli delegation brought it to, to Begin and Weissman for approval. The negotiations were a clash of cultures. The Israelis wanted to sign one contract that could be used for all future sales. They were hoping for a shopping bonanza. The problem was that the Chinese were not used to complicated contracts. At one point during the negotiations, for example, the Israelis insisted on including a force majeure clause in the contract. Quote, what is that? Unquote, the Chinese asked. After the Israelis explained that it freed the sides 
of a breach of contract in the event of an unforeseen act of God, the Chinese answered plainly, quote, well, there's no need for that since we don't believe in God, unquote. It took a year, but the two sides finally reached an agreement. The first shipment, tank shells, arrived in 1981, but the relationship remained a secret, even as the two sides increasingly began to trust each other. The Chinese refused to come to Israel, but agreed to sign hundreds of millions of dollars worth of contracts for tank shells, missiles, and radar systems, among other things, after seeing a couple of photos and occasional videos. They never visited a factory. In the arms sales world, it was unprecedented, but showed an amazing level of trust between the sides. Um, all right, just a few more paragraphs to the end of this. And this is, this is uh, coming from the book Weapon Wizards, how Israel became a high-tech military superpower, superpower by these authors, Yaakov Katz and Amir Bobot. Quote, in 1985, after dozens of trips, the veil of secrecy lifted just slightly. For the first time, the Chinese agreed to issue visas to nine executives from Israel's agriculture industry, including a government official from the agriculture ministry. That same year, Israel reopened its consulate in Hong Kong, which it had closed a decade before. Israel pressed Beijing to establish official ties, but the Chinese needed more time. In 1992, after the Madrid Peace Conference between Israelis and Arabs, the Chinese finally agreed to establish diplomatic ties with Jerusalem. Civilian trade skyrocketed, skyrocketed growing from under $100 million in 1992 to over $8 billion 20 years later, turning China into Israel's number one trade partner in Asia. This was quote-unquote arms diplomacy at its best with Israel using superior technology and military expertise to get a country to become its ally. It is a model the country would continue to refine and use successfully well after the secret arms trip in 1979. Unquote. End of article. And so now, to finish up, we're going to go to uh, it, this article titled the origins, proxy, the origins of Israel's military sales to China. September 2020, publisher Center for International and Regional Studies, CIRS, Georgetown University in Qatar, by author Yitzhak Shikhor, Hebrew University of Jerusalem. And uh, I'll just read the abstract, and there is the uh, PDF uh, of this online. Uh, that we found at researchgate.net. Okay, before I just get Yeah, to this is looking to be a very interesting article. Lots of names pop up in this, uh, just from what we've, uh, from, from skimming through it. So anyway, go ahead. Yes, definitely. And uh, we will just focus on a couple paragraphs after this abstract just to show some of the stuff that is in here as a way that we can then begin to uh, shift back to finishing some of our reading uh, about the more macro and a little bit more current uh, economic relations between Israel and China. Uh, the titled book, Israel and China from Silk Road to Innovation Highway by Lionel Friedfeld and Philippe Metudi, Understanding Asia's Relationship with the Jewish State, which maybe then we will take us into some readings of uh, specifically on the global dynamics of the Belt Road Initiative that will then help us then understand uh, this uh, some of these articles that we wanted to read about the uh, a little bit more 
thick description about the surveillance state uh, in China uh, and uh, and how it might be potentially related then to the the Belt Road Initiative and thinking of such people as uh, Eric Prince and then such uh, relations as uh, Israeli Unity 200 and Israeli cyber technology in terms of China and uh, Chinese uh, cyber operations, both domestically and then in relationship to the expansion of the Belt Road Initiative. But to finish out today, we will just read a little bit from a proxy, The Origins of Israel's Military Sales to China by Yitzhak Shikor. Abstract, quote, Although Israel had recognized the People's Republic of China as early as January 9, 1950, no diplomatic relations were established until January 24, 1992. In the meantime, Beijing adopted a hostile attitude towards Isra toward Israel while supporting in words and deeds Israel's Arab and Palestinian opponents. Nevertheless, an Israeli de uh, defense delegation arrived in China in early 1979, launching an extensive agreement on Israeli arms and military technology transfer to China. While this transfer served Israeli defense industrial interests aimed also at gaining a foothold in China toward the establishment of diplomatic relations, it primarily served U.S. interests to make China stronger against the Soviet Union. Treated uh, uh, or threatened by the Soviets, Washington and other potential Western arms suppliers could not provide weapons uh, compatible with their own inventory and without leading to dependence. Israel could and did supply advanced and upgraded Soviet-designed arms, as well as the methods to overcome them. Tis, oh, this was done quietly without prov provoking Moscow, unlike the public exchanges between China and other potential suppliers. Tis, this paper, discuss the, discuss the origins of Israel's arms sales to China, from different perspectives, Israel, China, and the U.S., which orchestrated the deals, and the Soviet Union, Western Europe, East Asia, and the Middle East, which competed or opposed them. Unquote. That's the abstract. And so, by the way, we're going to now delve into, are the U.S. did this or who? Which, which, who specifically was involved in this? And what do we know about that person's background? Uh, and all of that. So, all right. So let's get into this paper a little bit. Um, and we will just, uh, yeah, just a tiny bit here. All right. It, it, it talks about this. Sounds uh, good. The delegation. Um, okay. Th this is very interesting too. All right. I'll just back up here just a little bit and we'll, uh, there's so much interesting here that we can't get into all of it, but we'll just do a few paragraphs and then we'll finish it off. All right. Page 11 of the origins of Israel's military sales to China. Quote, unlike many potential Western arms suppliers, Israel had never recognized Taiwan, which had maintained a pro-Arab policy all along. Therefore, while transferring arms to Beijing, Israel did not have to consider Taipei's interests. Yet the crucial incentive for the Chinese to prefer Israeli weapons may have been that whereas traditional Western arms suppliers insisted on selling off-the-shelf weapons at full price, Israel, as a relatively small producer, agreed to sell China not just arms but also the technology to produce them. 
at that time, China could not afford, remember the phrase, uh, Israel's marrying Israel's technology to Chinese capacity, right? Quote, at that time, China could not afford to purchase complete weapon systems, as discussed in the China section below, and there was no way that Beijing could become dependent on Israel, a very small country without global ambitions, allegedly, <laughs> in this paper, unlike the U.S. or other Western leading arms suppliers. Yeah, I mean, it, did you put aside here? I mean, he's writing this in 2020. This is two years after Netanyahu was at APAC talking about the United about Israel as as a leading cyber superpower in the world, and then uh, Netanyahu in a similar time frame talked about uh, how Israel was not the sixth eye. I'm referring to the uh, infamous, uh, you know, American and British Commonwealth. Uh, signals intelligence uh, uh, alliance. He's, Netanyahu was like, people talk about the five eyes. People talk about maybe we're the sixth eye. He's like, no, we're the second eye. And basically saying second to the United States. And so obviously there's global aspirations. Netanyahu bragged about these economic global aspirations, about how he was using Israeli technology to generate both Israeli economic, but more importantly, Israeli diplomatic power, uh, and, and by turning Israel into a, a globally aspirational cybersecurity uh, superpower. All right. And so this is not, uh, I don't believe that this is academically legitimate uh, I mean, oh, I understand he's sort of like hearkening back on the era, right, that that it would be seen that Israel was not a uh, globally ambitious. But it was at that time. It was Israel already had global ambition. So um, I just wanted to point that out. All right. Back to the uh, art, this uh, paper, the origins of Israel's military sales to uh, China by Yitzhak Shakur from the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. Publisher was the Center for International and Regional Studies, CIRS, Georgetown University in Qatar. Okay, page 11 again. Quote, um, Beijing could, uh, quote, finally, Israel's experience could offer China a model of defense industries for research, development, and production of advanced and sophisticated arms and military equipment, despite the constraints of sanctions and embargoes. Okay, that's a very good point. Quote, still, to acquire Israeli arms and military technology, Beijing had to change its negative attitude towards Israel, at least unofficially. Initial signs in this direction emerged when Howard Squadron, president of the American Jewish Congress, visited China in November 1978. He and his delegation, including Leonard Woodcock, head of the U.S. mission in Beijing, held an interview with Gung Biao, who had earlier been appointed vice premier and later became minister of national defense in 1981 with uh, Xi Jinping as his Mishu personal secretary. Gung, Geng's, Gung, I don't know if it's Gung or Geng's attitude towards the Jews and especially towards Israel was much more positive than that of other Chinese leaders primarily in the context of the peace negotiations with Egypt. Senator Richard Stone, who served as chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Subcommittee on the Middle East, who also had returned from a visit to China, felt that, quote, the opportunity may soon exist to discuss the common interests that both China and Israel have in resisting Soviet expansion, unquote. 
Stone and other U.S. experts did not imply that Sino-Israeli diplomatic relations were about to be formed, yet a Sino-Israeli agreement on arms sales could not be ruled out. Now, it goes through some the interesting period of the uh, the relationship of uh, Israel and Iran and the Shah fleeing Iran uh, in January of 1979, the collapse of the Berlin Wall later on. Um, Greg? This is interesting that um, this is Israel and China solidifying this uh, relationship, at least this aspect of it, based on reacting to the Soviet Union, which is like the... Uh, it's a... It's interesting in this framing of uh, you know China and you know Israel approaching China with weapons with protective measures against ostensibly a threat from the Soviet Union since uh, China and the Soviet Union had long split before this and were kind of competing for influence in the uh, I believe uh, the once again this is my rather not overly educated uh, viewpoint on this but uh, the the, the split that had taken place during the Cold War and like Israel almost exploiting this, it seems like, with uh, offering weapons and protection to China that would uh, basically against a Soviet threat. So uh, it's a very interesting uh, geopolitical um, ploy at play there. I wonder how much of that is legit, but um, it's interesting that that is the stated reason for this. And so um, I, I picked up on that and I found that to be very interesting. Very, very much so. And th that... That is a crucial thing to analyze because even in terms of things like the neocon split that we've talked about or the dynamics of some of the neoconservative networks in relationship to this quote unquote hawkish relationship to the Soviet Union, there are there might be a layer above this in terms of the if you think about it as a global intelligence operation where things are compartmentalized that at one level, the understanding of maybe what we might title the American first neocons who wanted to utilize the unipolar moment, it then extended uh, with uh, increasing opportunity in their mind by September 11th to uh, increase the, uh, actually the new American century. And they may have actually sort of believed, some might have believed in that. And we have assessed that, that that's potentially why such crucial neoconservatives, such as Bill Crystals and even the Kagans, really, really were uh, never Trump and really were against the Trump operation because they believed in the, uh, the, um, the American first Yes, very Zionist and very, very uh, deeply um, loyal to certain Israeli uh, interests. But American, sort of the idea of that the seat of power would continue to be mm, D.C. So we've, that was one thing that we began talking about very early on in the Trump years. And But it may be that that kind of split or the other kind of split that the question of why Afghanistan First and foremost, was it only because it was built into the intelligence legend side of the 9-11 operation, the hijacked, hijacking operation, which was really the intelligence legend uh, part of the uh, September 11th operation, but not the military, i.e. explosives uh, operation part of it, or the counterintelligence cover-up uh, operation uh, act after the fact. But this question of Afghanistan 
and the negotiation between maybe these what we might call a Kissinger fa- faction and a Brzezinski uh, faction um, that there might have been some overall play there in terms of these kind of levels of understanding uh, geopolitical interests, while there might have been a level above that in terms of easily thinking through that if there were certain in, you know elements in the United States that obviously wanted to uh, give the Soviets their own Vietnam in Afghanistan, that there might be some kind of allure but you know the mainstream and even up through someone like you know what media roots uh, allow to sort of go fairly uncritically in terms of scott horton from anti-war the sort of libertarian anti-war allegation that uh, bin laden desired to lure the great american empire it's never clear which bin laden uh scott horton is referring to there are multiple bin Ladens. The, well, I believe the one of the major bin Ladens that he's referring to is the bin Laden with the golden robe and the dyed beard. Uh, after the fact, the one that weighed into the 2004 elections immediately uh, in order to apparently try to give a boost to uh, George Bush in the run-up to the uh, Karl Rove, uh, Mike, Mike Connell uh, operation uh, s- centering around Ohio and uh, Ken Blackwell of uh, CNP infamy, and all of uh, and all of that uh, that uh, whole episode. All right, so all right, little bit, I keep on getting on these tangents, Greg. I got to get back uh, into focus here. Let's uh, finish this up here. <laughs> Sounds good. I mean, it's like I mean, we could go on so many more tangents than this. I mean, there's so many rabbit holes. There's so much information, but. Uh, Unfortunately, we have a finite amount of time to get through a relatively infinite uh, amount of information. And we'll just keep pushing through the what we see as core texts here for understanding this, hopefully actionably, in a, a core political way. All right, back to, uh, we are now on, okay, I think we'll, I'm going to skip ahead a little bit here to page 13 of this paper, Proxy, The Origins of Mil- Israel's Military Sales to China by Yitzhak Shikor. Page 13, quote, following its first military delegation to China, more Israelis arrived there. Very concerned about harmful publicity, the Chinese asked Israel through Eisenberg to keep these links confidential. Defense Minister Weizmann agreed to inform the Chinese, quote, that measures were undertaken to maintain as far as possible, the secrecy of the exchanges, unquote, emphasis added to as far as possible. Unlike some of his predecessors and successors, Weissman wished to coordinate every move toward China with the Foreign Ministry Director General Joseph Sichanover. Uh, Weissman informed him that a ship was being prepared to leave for China in June 1979 under a foreign flag but with an Israeli crew as a mobile exhibition of Israel's defense industry products. After Weizmann resigned in May 1980, rumors were beginning to spread about Israel's, quote, huge amount of military equipment, unquote, sales to China, raising concerns that the Chinese would cancel the deal. Under these circumstances, the editor's committee in charge of Israel's media agreed to suppress any publication about it. Foreign Minister Dayan argued, quote, there is no objective chance of keeping military relations with China secret, unquote. 
and that it was better to avoid any commitment to secrecy. Unquote. And this real quick aside, I just want to point out that this is, we've often talked about that the Israel being this long-term military garrison warfare state where they're, everyone's uh, inscripted or m most everybody's conscripted to serve in the military so that they basically the entirety of their corporate infrastructure in serious domains such as cybersecurity, counterterrorism, weapons technology. Of course, it's all populated by uh, almost always military and Israeli military intelligence veterans. But here's another piece of this that's key is that in terms of if Israel is this key kind of cut out in certain ways in terms of the the uh, proxy to the to certain elements in the east uh, that it also is uh, has a strong security culture where it has this editorial board in the government uh, where the military censors all kinds of things like even someone like a uh, Jewish American journalist Richard Silverstein breaks stories out of sources who can't be heard in the from Israel who can't be heard in the Israeli press because of the military censors so then Silverstein then puts it back through his uh, First Amendment rights in the United States of America. And yes, we have our own sensorial issues, more like propaganda issues in terms of the ownership of the media, but also the long-term uh, intelligence operations in relationship to the media. But there's not this direct military censor secrecy thing in terms of the United States so that someone like Richard Silverstein can actually open up certain things that are military secrets under the censors in Israel and publish them in an American context. And then the is then Israelis can then read it. And so that's one way that, uh, that they certain aspects of the Israeli population can be educated via, uh, their sources being heard in another country. So I just want to point out that the secrecy culture that's integrated into the military garrison warfare straight, uh, state by this editor, editor's committee, uh, the, what's called the editor's committee in Israel, is a key piece too in terms of any long-term uh, geopolitical espionage operations uh, that have uh, you know, global uh, implications. Uh, such as is being talked about here in terms of the delicate nature of the evolving, uh, emerging Chinese-Israeli, especially uh, weapons, but more generally economic relationships. So I just want to point out that the, that combination of the military garrison warfare state combined with the, uh, the implicated and very... Uh, uh, government-established military censors and secrecy uh, makes it a key nodal point for a lot of these kinds of operations. All right. Page 13 of Proxy, the Origins of Israel's Military Sales to China by Yitzhak Shakur. Okay, quote, uh, and that it was better to avoid any commitment to secrecy. Furthermore, under no circumstances, he underlined, should an Israeli be sent to China without an authentic passport. Whereas Israeli passports were preferable, other passports could be used as long as they were authentic, though not necessarily valid. In those days, Dayan was in Asia, an indication of Israel's growing interest in the region. 
In a retrospective view, China was to become the key that opened uh, Asia for Israel's external relations. And then finally, the section titled American Keys, Reservations and Resolution. Quote, one of the major questions, primarily in light of U.S. criticism of Israel's arms sales to China since the early 1990s, is if, when, or to what extent Washington had been aware of the sales in the 1980s. Based on declassified Israeli and American documents, it appears that the idea of Israeli arms sales to China may have originated, and that's uh, italicized, in the U.S., and later adopted by Beijing and Jerusalem in that order. Allegedly, the first to raise the idea was Henry Kissinger, with a follow-up by James Schlesinger, Defense Secretary 1973-1975, and Zbigniew Brzezinski, National Security Advisor 1977-1981. A Chinese source disclosed that as early as July 1971, during his first quote-unquote secret visit to China, Kissinger might have briefed the Chinese about the skills of Israeli Air Force pilots and the effectiveness of Israeli arms against Soviet military equipment. Just two or three years after the Sino-Soviet clashes along the Yusuri River and the Shenzhen border. At a meeting held in late September in Paris, a Chinese vice premier said that Kissinger had told the Chinese that they could count on the Israelis. Their weapons were as good as American. Some recycled yet unverified reports suggested that Kissinger had authorized Eisenberg, his close friend, to begin a discreet China Armed Forces modernization program. Valued at $10 billion, the program was to consist of Israeli and U.S.-designed weapons re-exported through Israel. Visiting China in September 1976, James Schlesinger, former CIA director and Secretary of Defense, met with China's Defense Minister, Marshal Ye Zhangying, according to Richard Pearl, then senior staff member to Senator Henry Jackson, who served on the Senate Armed Services Committee and who had joined the trip, Schlesinger advised the Chinese to study the 1973 Yom Kippur War because of its importance. Ye reportedly replied that, chi that the Chinese studied the war in the military academies. Schlesinger asked him if he would be interested in an unclassified analysis of the war which he had, and Ye replied that he would be happy to obtain it. Pearl and the rest of the delegation felt that, in military terms, the Chinese were no more than a quote-unquote paper tiger that lacked anti-tank and anti-aircraft weapons, armor, aircraft, and other advanced military equipment. The Chinese, according to another source, were also interested in airborne defense warning system that Israel was expected to provide them later on. All right, one last little piece here. There's another interesting character who uh, involved and in, aware and involved in this. Okay, quote, according to his own testimony, Edward Lutvak, at the time research and visiting professor at Johns Hopkins and Georgetown Universities. Oh, and by the way, I believe Lutvak is also the author of the the book about uh, coups, uh, about uh, how to conduct a coup, I think. I, I can't remember exactly the title of his book, but I believe that's Edward Lutvak, who uh, wrote the modern book on uh, the 
tactics and philosophy of You clues. are correct about that, yes. You are correct about this. It is a uh, loot box. Yes. Okay. All right, thank you. All right, let's finish this paragraph and then we'll uh, let this episode close. But I just wanted to make sure that we read this thing about Dick Kissinger potentially being the close friend of Shaul Eisenberg, being the one to sign off on this. And then we will then in the future continue onwards with our investigations into the actual background of Henry Kissinger. And while many, uh, you know, people will sort of just unabashedly just embrace the writings of Anatoly Galitsyn, who was the key asset, maybe enabler, maybe handler of someone like James Jesus Angleton, the key person to understand if you want to understand the things like the Kennedy assassinations, if you want to understand the special U.S.-Israeli relationship, and we might suggest to understand the deep penetration uh, of the U.S. national security establishment, not just by the Israelis, but also by Soviet intelligence over the long term. You got to understand James Jesus Angleton and the fact that Anatoly Galitsyn, who has written the book that is sort of referred to in an uncritical fashion by a lot of people who sh at this point should know better in terms of the deeper research around uh, who exposed Kissinger was Golanuski, the colonel who had uh, exposed and had been verified a lot of his information to uh, route out and uh, and uh, and prosecute actually um, uh, high level Soviet moles all throughout the Western political world, but not one of his uh, um, backed up claims around the moles in the United States. One of them being at the time he came in and started in 1961. Golanuski starts pointing the finger at then an unknown Harvard professor, Heinz Kissinger, as a long-term Soviet mole. And then, then, then bam, uh, Kennedy assassination, Angleton, uh, then, then it's a, a, a shift to uh, Golitsyn, Angleton's buddy, uh, who is apparent, looks like he's sort of there to sort of overwrite or uh, uh, discredit the Golanuski, much more credible exposure of these global uh, Soviet intelligence networks and is, is pointing the finger directly at Kissinger with a much more discredited uh, layer that's being handled by this highly suspect character of James Jesus Angleton, the head of U.S. counterintelligence and the head of the U.S. intelligence desk of Israel, controlling all the information flow around that and how it's all tied into around the Kennedy assassination. And, uh, and th there's just a lot of questions about that whole episode that speaks directly about, I think, the severe potential credibility of these earlier Golanuski uh, allegations around around Kissinger and then then how that negatively reflects on the credibility of Golitsyn, the role of Golitsyn as a potential long-term and immediate uh, enabler of disinformation and of helping apparently James Jesus Angleton tie up the American counterintelligence services for more than a decade to the point of where they found nothing actionable. 
ever came of uh, Angleton's accusing all kinds of people and the endless resources and the control of the investigation into the monster plot that he and Golitsyn were were after. And then meanwhile, when Angleton finally, uh, the, a, uh, a younger uh, uh, part of his special investigations group is tasked with in, uh, by Angleton to investigate another accused member of the U.S. intelligence community. And without Angleton knowing, Claire Petty is his name, begins to turn the investigation as it inevitably be, begins turning back via a, a building a, a amount of vast circumstantial evidence that Angleton, Claire Petty, began to assess in an intelligence world 80 to 85 percent. That's way beyond raw intelligence. You're heading into a, a, a you're heading towards a criminal level of proof at that point. Think about it. You know, criminal proof of guilt is somewhere above 95 percent. Think about a jury has to be not one person out of 12 has to be convinced. So you're that's you're talking about 93 percent in terms of you have to be above 93 percent. Uh, so when Claire Petty gets to 80 to 85 percent based on circumstantial raw intelligence data that the guy, his boss, the guy who had tasked him to go investigate the monster plot Russian intelligence moles, believes that it was his boss, Angleton himself, who was the, the he believed, the Soviet agent. And then this, then we have this whole, then what that all means about Golitsyn and Angleton. And then, of course, this then, dis, at that point, then discredited or ignored earlier Goliniski allegations, many of which had actually been actionable in counterintelligence in legal fashion throughout the Western political world, uh, but nothing in an American context that uh, that Kissinger somehow became the, you know, the the key political player. And now then then all of what we know now from that time to now, including that that this out this allegation that Kissinger had authorized Shaul Eisenberg, the key man for Israeli intelligence uh, in the Asian sphere, to initiate the key moment for the closing of ties between the closer, the closening of ties between uh, Israel and China, which has continued onward and only escalated to this day. And then add in all of the stuff with Kissinger in terms of uh, Kissinger and Associates, uh, CNI, September 11th, and it just is just uh, a lot there that we still have to unpack. Yeah, this is crucial information here, and it's incredible just how little traction there is. Like, just you have, I mean, it, you can hardly find this information virtually anywhere. I mean, you know, the and it's it's so important and uh, because Kissinger is a key figure who people think they understand, but I don't think really understand in terms of like what he, who he is and what his legacy would be and what he represents. I mean, this is a, uh, but in terms of a uh, geopolitical uh, aspect of what we've been exploring and, and hammering home on for the last few years here, I mean, this is really key stuff and it's, uh, as I said just before, it's just amazing just how little is known about any of this, and there's very clearly some uh, some serious, uh, very consequential, serious uh, 
results of this um, of this alliance that seems to have been cultivated by uh, Kissinger enabling a uh, Shaul Eisenberg and encouraging him to make these to make these inroads. And I mean, it's just history and the names just repeat themselves. And this is just one example of that. But uh, this is very crucial, and it's it's a, it's just incredible how little is known about it. I totally agree. And uh, I, I'm not going to read this uh, whole paragraph. It's sort of very specific about specific kinds of weapons that the Chinese would want in relationship to Soviet weaponry. And uh, so all of that. But I, I think your point as to where we should leave it, we're now have uh, crossed over from the evening of uh, Saturday, September 18th. Now we are at uh, Sunday, September 19th after a little bit after midnight and uh, we will pick up these threads and more uh, at a uh, soon but later date uh, so until next week or not next week next time maybe tomorrow greg <laughs> antidote <laughs> yeah deep cortex i guess we're out for now all right have a good one all right bye everybody